Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Well, some of us feel joy, others feel fear. And I think the group that fears are primarily people who've grown up in the church, but they've wandered away from the Lord. And they know enough to, well, I can't remember exactly how Greg Laurie used to say, they have too much of the Bible to be comfortable in the world and too much of the world to be comfortable with the Lord. But if this idea of, hey, the Lord's coming back, if that strikes fear in your heart, well, you're gonna wanna deal with that issue. Today we begin a new, very special two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, Jesus is Coming Soon. Why do I call it very special? Well, Luke chapter 21 deals almost exclusively with Jesus Christ's return, an event that all Christians should anxiously be awaiting. Without any further ado, let's jump into Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Here we go. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Title of our study this morning, Jesus is coming soon. Last night I posed the question, what do you guys feel when you hear someone say, Jesus is coming soon? And I just looked out there and there were guys kind of staring me down saying, you know, we don't feel anything. We're thinkers. And, uh, but I've played basketball with guys. I know that's not the case. There's lots of emotion, lots of feeling. We just, well, we know how to repress and subdue it. But here's what I feel when I hear someone say, Jesus is coming soon. I feel joy and anticipation and expectation. My heart just says, yes, Lord, come quickly. Not just because, well, that's what he'd want me to think or say, but because that's truly what's happening in my heart. If there's any hesitation in you today, if you're thinking, man, don't come back, it should only be because you have people that you love and you're praying for who haven't yielded their life to the Lord Jesus. Nothing else should be more important to you than standing before him and becoming like him in glory, perfected in his presence. Well, some of us feel joy, others feel fear. And I think the group that fears are primarily people who've grown up in the church, but they've wandered away from the Lord. And they know enough to, well, I can't remember exactly how Greg Laurie used to say, they have too much of the Bible to be comfortable in the world and too much of the world to be comfortable with the Lord. But if this idea of, hey, the Lord's coming back, if that strikes fear in your heart, well, you're going to want to deal with that issue. There are others who are just confused by the whole idea of Jesus returning or his, some are concerned. Some actually have contempt for the idea. The cynic mocks the idea that Jesus is coming again. And, um, hey, I get the cynic's mindset. Peter said to expect it. People in the last days would be saying, hey, where is the promise of his coming? I mean, everything just goes on the way it always has. You guys are always saying Jesus is coming back again soon. And we want to make sure that, well, I don't know if there's much you can do for a cynic, but if you talk to a skeptic, there's a lot you can do. It's like the difference between an atheist and an agnostic. The atheist just says, I know there is no God. God says that person's a fool. But the agnostic says, I don't know if there's a God and I don't know if you can know. You can say to them, oh, there is and you can know. Because they're looking for something still, you see. Well, well, here's the issue that, that a skeptic, and there are many honest skeptics, they'll just say, how do we know for sure? Not that, that he's coming back. We know he said that. We know he promised that. How do we know that these are the days in which our Lord will return? Well, we're going to look at a series of signs that Jesus gives us that, that really make it clear that we are, in fact, living in those days. Before we get there, though, he concludes a, a series of rather interesting contrasts that began way back in chapter 12, where we saw the rich fool and, and then the contrast between the two servants. 
We looked at the unjust steward in chapter 15 and the rich man and Lazarus. We looked at the rich young ruler in chapter 17. We looked at the parable of the minas in chapter 19. And now we come to this contrast between this rich, uh, those rich people putting their money in the treasury and the poor widow. It says he looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. He saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put more than all for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. What I learned from this and again, it concludes a rather lengthy section where he's dealt with other issues, but he keeps coming back to this issue. And what I learned from it is that God's accounting methods are far different than mine. When I'm doing accounting, I always think in terms of what I've given. When God does accounting, he looks in terms of what I have left. And so he's seeing these people and they're putting no doubt a lot in, but they have a lot more left over. And again, we never want to limit these kinds of discussions or, or uh, contemplations to just giving of cash or something like that. No, it's about our lives. And, and so if you're the kind of person that thinks, man, I spent a whole hour with the Lord yesterday, you know, and, and you're thinking that's an amazing thing. Then the question is, well, how many hours were left? Because we all have 24 hours every day. And, and so the issue is he's looking not just at what we give, but what's left over afterwards. I heard a story. I'm doubting that it's true, but it, it still illustrates the point. It was about a pig and a chicken that were having a conversation uh, about the farmer who cared for them. And, and they were discussing, well, wouldn't it be great to do something for him? I mean, he provides everything for us. He cares so much for us. And, and, and the chicken came up with an idea. He said, I think what we ought to do is give him some ham and eggs. And uh, the pig said, well, listen, for you, that's a contribution. For me, that's a commitment. And I think God's looking for that from us, a real commitment, a surrender of our whole person that we would deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Well, that becomes important as we look ahead and we're looking now through the lens of our Lord as he talks about the things that are going to happen in the lives of those disciples he was talking to at the time and the things that will be happening well, in the lives of, of those of us who are following after him today. As he spoke or some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. He said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him saying, teacher, when will these things be? And what will there be when these things are about to take place? What sign will there be? They're basically asking two questions here. Now, if you look at Matthew 24, and I recommend that later, and Mark 13, you get some of the blanks filled in. It's important to know they were actually asking him at least three questions. And one of them had to do with the signs preceding his coming. Here it just makes it sound like they're just interested in, well, what kind of things are going to happen before the temple is destroyed? And we're going to see a principle illustrated throughout this passage, and it's a principle of the near and far fulfillment, of the local and universal fulfillment. The idea really can easily be illustrated by David's desire to build a temple. God says, that's not going to happen. You're a man of blood, a man of war. But he says, I'll give you a son, and, and I'll build a temple for you. Now, David has a son named Solomon. Solomon builds a temple. And, and so we see the near fulfillment. It's literal. It's real. He's his son. All of it happens just as God says it will. But we know that David has another son. That Matthew's gospel tells us Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. 
And don't let that trip you out. You can't have two dads uh, unless you have a stepdad. But, but uh, really, uh, the, the deal is it's just descendant of, you know, David and Abraham. So the point is this. Jesus also builds a temple, this one made without hands. He, he says we are actually stones in that temple. He inhabits his people. Well, in any case, that principle will be uh, used and in, in, in seen again and again here. So they're looking at this temple. It seems so solid. They know the history. It's been destroyed before. But this thing is massive and it's and, and there's just something about a, a huge stone structure that speaks of stability. In fact, if you ever do get to Israel with us or without us, you go to the Wailing Wall and there's a tunnel that runs alongside of it. Actually, you go into this thing and then tr work your way down. And, and there are stones that are in the foundation of that that Wailing Wall. It was just the foundation for the temple, uh, you know, mount itself. And there are stones that. Well, to give you an idea, if you were to go from where the carpet stops on this side all the way to where the carpet stops on this side, there are stones that are that long, one stone, and they are, you know, four feet high and, and four feet wide. I mean, how they even got them there and, and put this thing together is amazing. But when he's telling them, they're looking at how beautiful it is and how strong and stable it is. And he's saying, hey, not one stone will remain upon another. Now that prophecy was literally fulfilled in 70 AD. Titus, uh, a Roman commander, came in. He, he uh, murdered multitudes of the Jews. He took many others captive and headed back to Rome where, where they built this giant arch. It's still there if you ever get to Rome. It's the Arch of Titus. And you can see that the, uh, the um, relief that they have in it of the, the people they took captive and, and they're carrying a giant menorah. So it's actually celebrating his victory over the people of Israel and, and devastating them, destroying their temple, bringing many of them back as slaves. So, so they're asking, well, when will all this go down? How is this going to happen? And Jesus, of course, well, he tells them to take heed that they be not deceived. This would apply to us as well. Jesus never warns us unnecessarily. He doesn't say, watch out for this if there's nothing to watch out for. He also doesn't encourage us to do something unnecessarily. And you'll see how important that is when we get near the end of this study in just a little while. Well, he says, here's the signs. These are the things you can look for. And then he'll illustrate with a couple beautiful illustrations to say, well, we can see that we're living in those days. Many, he says, will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. Many will come, false Christ, false prophets, false teachers, false professors. In fact, over the years, prophets, preachers, politicians keep on promising to deliver us, to save us. And, and the reality is only Jesus can do that. And so he's saying, be careful and don't be deceived. Don't get drawn out after some false Christ who has a false gospel that will produce false Christians. Well, he says, not only that, but when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Now, this is important because from the very beginning, he's saying we're talking about two things. We're going to answer your question about the temple and what's going to happen to you. And then we're going to talk about the end. And he'll get so specific that he begins talking about his coming again. In answer to our prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
hey, that is going to be literally fulfilled. That, that prayer will be answered when Jesus returns to the earth and sets up his kingdom where he rules and reigns upon the earth for a thousand years. So he says, watch out for false Christ, false prophets and such. Know that there'll be wars and commotions. Don't let that terrify you. By the way, wars are the norm among mankind. Commotions, they speak to unrest, confusion, and violence. The kind that we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah before its destruction, but it's broader than that because this isn't localized. No, this is worldwide chaos and confusion and devastation. And we're beginning to see the signs of that kind of devastation. And we'll talk about why. He mentions next nations and kingdoms colliding. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. You know, 20th century, World War I, World War II, and really the beginning of World War III. It's a global war. We hear the terminology, the war on terror, the war on terrorism. You need to know that this isn't just some people in the Middle East who don't like America or don't like Israel, although that's a serious issue. No, we're talking about terrorism in the Philippines. We're talking about terrorism in South America. We're talking about terrorism in Europe. We're talking about terrorism worldwide. And so the war has begun and this one isn't going to come to an end until, well, the Prince of Peace returns and puts an end to all of it. In any case, he's already said, hey, don't be terrified. Don't be freaked out. Know what's coming. Then you can say, all right, the Lord said it was going to happen. He has things well in hand. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That's important as well. Because there's not just the kingdoms of men colliding, but, but there's a spiritual warfare, a war behind the war. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, we read, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. He also goes on to say there'll be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Now, not just the cynic, but even the skeptic will often say, hey, they've always been saying that, right? And there have always been famines and pestilence. There's always been earthquakes. But that's another reason to, to look at Matthew 24 and Mark 13, because Jesus uses two words to describe these things. And to tell us that this is how we know we're living in those days. He calls them birth pangs. And you know that when those birth pains increase in intensity and frequency, that you're getting close to the birth. He says, yeah, these things, they're going on. They'll always go on. But when they increase in intensity and frequency, well, it's about to go down. So great earthquakes, you don't have to get a Bible commentary for this one or, or trust some pastor. No, you can just go to the sites that the governments have set up to track the earthquakes and you'll be able to see as I have that they are increasing in frequency and they're more devastating. Oh, there've been some really devastating earthquakes in the past. But there are more and more and they're closer and closer. And, and that's exactly what he said will precede his coming. Famines, it's a, it's a craziest thing to me that, that worldwide people are still starving. When we have all this technology and we have all of the things that we do possess that should be able to. Hey, if that's for me, tell them I'll get back to them. Um, but we have all of these things that. That, that, you know, should be able to get us past it. Now, there are places in the world where people are starving because of their religious beliefs, because of their philosophical understandings. India is one of those places. I visited it. And there are just multitudes of starving people and there's cows walking around everywhere. And, and I'm like, okay, they don't eat meat. I get that. But, but there's also a, a problem in why they don't eat meat, by the way, isn't just like, you know, 
you know, doctors who figured out might not be as healthy or something. No, they don't eat meat because they think that that cow could be Aunt Bessie, uh, literally, because, you know, they believe in reincarnation, that you could come back as a cow. There's another issue. They have problem with grains because they feed the grains to the cows. And also the grains are just filled with rats because they don't kill rats. Why? They actually worship cows and rats. And again, because of reincarnation, they think, hey, remember Uncle Joe? He was a real rat. Maybe that's Uncle Joe because you come back in the state or in a worse state than the one you were in. Now, we know that reincarnation is, is an idea of man. It's not a biblical concept. It's not doctrinally reality. But that's the tragedy here, see? People are starving because, because of karma. And not only that, not only because they think, well, that could be or might be a relative or something, but this idea that, hey, everyone's getting exactly what they deserve. So if I'm incredibly wealthy living in India, then I think, well, I must have been really good in some past life to have all this now. And everyone thinks that. And if my neighbor's starving to death, I'm like, they must have been really bad. And I don't want to get and mess up their karma here because they're working out their bad karma. You see, that whole mindset leads to starvation. And so it's, it's not the only reason that, that these things are happening. There are others. By the way, biblically, when Jesus talked to that first century group about famines and such, they would have seen this as a sign from God. Their covenant with God included a promise from him that if they strayed away, if they got into idolatry or immorality or any of the things he forbid them, that he would shut up the heavens and there'd be no rain. The rain, you know, the lack of rain would lead to famines. And then they'd say, oh yeah, I remember God said this was going to happen. And then the idea being they would turn back to him. Well, there's something else happening in America. We actually do play a part today in the, the famine of the world. And, and one way we do it, I'm not saying you're responsible for it, but our government certainly is. And we, we elect those guys. So uh, the issue is that, that we actually pay farmers not to grow crops at a time where people are starving all over the world. We even have people they say are starving here in America and we're paying farmers. Where does that money come from? It comes from us. They take our tax dollars and they pay the farmers and hey, this makes no sense. People are starving, grow the crops. Why don't we let them grow all the crops they want? Well, that would lower the prices. Well, isn't lower prices good? Well, not if your goal is to make a lot of money and, or, or you know, so the point is this, I'm not blaming the farmers. They're being told not to grow. I'm blaming the politicians. And, and, and they're always, you know, an easy scapegoat for every problem and deserve to be mostly. So um, the, the issue is people starve for so many different reasons. But Jesus said, you'll see this. There will be increasing starvation in the last days, not less and less. You know, we're doing something else interesting now. We're converting corn to fuel so we can have what we, they say it's better than the gasoline we've been using. The problem is, again, corn can be actually eaten. And that was the purpose for which it was created. And so I'm not sure it's a better use to put it in our cars than to feed hungry people with it. Well, not just great earthquakes and not just famines, but pestilences. It speaks to deadly and curable diseases. I could give you the list, but I just refer you to the Center for Disease Control. They will give you a list that will just shock you and make you paranoid. You'll be carrying wipes around like monk, you know, and because there are so many things out there now. And uh, in any case, he says, hey, expect all this. And remember, he said, don't let it terrify you. Just know that it's coming. These are signs that we're getting close to his coming. Fearful sights and great signs from heaven. God's trying to get our attention. And if you look at Revelation 6 through 19, all of that's still future. 
you're going to see that that what Jesus mentions here is fleshed out there in just a radical and truly terrifying way. Well, he's talking about the signs that precede his coming. And we need to make a distinction between his coming for us and then his return with us. Coming for us, it's called the rapture. His return with us, well, that's the second coming where he rules and reigns upon the earth and we rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Now we're going to see he makes a clear distinction between the two and perhaps in one of the clearest passages in scripture, we're going to see why we can expect to be with him before his wrath is poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. Well, Remember, he's talking to them, though, and he started talking to them about the end times and the things that will be happening in the end times. But before all these things, he says, let's get back to you, he's saying. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. The you here, it's his disciples. It's Jesus talking. It's his disciples listening. And he's saying, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be imprisoned. And, And where do the trials take place? In the synagogues. You know that's not an issue for us. But it was an issue first century in Israel, and it's an issue in the 21st century, ironically enough, in Israel. He says, they'll be delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Happens to Peter and John, happens to others. Later, it happens to the Apostle Paul, who calls himself the last and the least of the apostles because, well, he persecuted the church of God before, before coming to Christ himself. Well, he says in verse 13, as bad as all this sounds, it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. He's saying these trials, these persecutions, these tribulations, They're going to give you an opportunity to testify for me. And that's exactly what happened to them. By the way, we're not to think that we're going to escape persecution or trial or tribulation. No, Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they love me, they'll love you. Persecution, expect it. Trial, expect it. Tribulation in this world, you will have tribulation. He says, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. But he's not talking there about the tribulation that that is his wrath poured out on a Christ rejecting world. He's talking about the tribulation that happens at the hands of men because we love Jesus and they hate him. Well, your trials, as well as those first disciples trials, he say will provide an occasion for testimony. How good would it be if when we got called on the carpet at work and and we know that what we're being accused of isn't something we did? Instead of trying to defend ourselves or or try to accuse someone else, we just said, well, this must be what he was talking about. And we just shared the Lord with the boss. I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? He's going to fire you anyway. Might as well share the Lord on your way out. And who knows? He might respond and then not fire you. He might actually surrender his life. So, So here's the point. Opportunity to testify. So settle in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. He's saying you can't really prepare for the trial that's coming because you don't know exactly who and where and when or the context. He says, I'll give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Now, so important to remember who's speaking? Jesus. Who's he speaking to? The very ones he had trained and discipled for the past three and a half years. Why does that matter? Because he's not suggesting that you don't need to study or show yourself approved or know the word of God. See, they were doing that. Now he's saying you can trust me in the hour of your trial. 
to bring to your remembrance and give to you exactly what I want you to say to them. We have the same promise that he by his Holy Spirit will bring to our remembrance the things he's taught us. While I have never been brought before kings and rulers for the namesake of Jesus, and while I have never been delivered up to the synagogues and prisons for the namesake of Jesus, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit has not given me the wisdom and the words to say when I needed them most, and he will most certainly do the same with you. John 14, 26 tells us, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now you might think that Jesus was speaking to his disciples in that verse. He's never said anything to me. Yes, he has. Every word recorded in scripture is God breathed. Every word in scripture was spoken directly to you by God himself. All you have to do is read it. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.